This is the Manufacturing Report. I'm Scott Paul. For too many of our citizens, a different reality exists. Mothers and children trapped in poverty in our inner cities. Rusted out factories scattered like tombstones across the landscape of our nation. This American carnage stops right here and stops right now. Happy holidays, everyone. 2017 has been an epic year. Politically and culturally, it's been a year marked by moments of anguish, anxiety, disbelief, and for many of us, exhaustion. Even though it's quite fair to say that this has been a year that many would like to forget, there are a few things we think are worth remembering. And so we'll have a roundtable conversation on the things we'd like to keep, as well as a few items that we'd like to leave on the trash heap of this crazy year. Let's get started. I'm really happy to be joined by Beth Brotherton-Bunch, Jet Moody, and Matt McMullen, our comms gurus here at the Alliance for American Manufacturing. Together with our colleagues at AAM, Beth, Jet, and Matt have provided our advocates with a year's worth of analysis, made in America shopping ideas, as well as a few much needed distractions like Homer Simpson gifts. Uh, it's been a roller coaster of a year on the manufacturing and trade policy beats, and we'll be breaking down some of the top stories from our world. We'll welcome your feedback on our list, as well as things you'd add to it as well. And we'll close with a bonus, our own customized last-minute holiday shopping ideas. So Beth, Jet, Matt, welcome to the podcast. Thanks. Thanks for having us. Happy to be here. You bet. So we started off with, uh, uh, with a uh, Trump uh, clip from his swearing in, uh, but let's talk about what happened out in that America that, that he's referencing uh, this year to get us started. Uh, because there were a number of developing developments in the manufacturing space uh, uh, that, that policy wasn't necessarily kind of infused with, and it's important to talk about those. Um, and one of the things that I think bummed a few of us out was the fact that American Apparel basically shut down. Uh, and uh, Beth, what happened there? Yeah, so if you follow sort of the Made in America retail movement, American Apparel for a long time um, was one of the few companies who sort of broke through to the mainstream. In fact, in the early 2000s, you might even say they were the only kind of player in this space. Um, and they managed to sell American-made t-shirts and pants and dresses and other um, apparel. Um, you know, in retail locations throughout the, the country, they were usually had their stores in really hip neighborhoods, they had really hip fashion, um, advertising campaigns. Um, but then, you know, they sort of went through hard times toward the end of the, the last decade into this one. Um, Dove Charney, who was... Um, a little controversial. A little controversial. <laughs> there were accusations of sexual misconduct, um, and he was actually forced out. Um, and the company never really recovered from that. So it had nothing to do with their you know, sort of made in America foundation, it really had to do with the leadership at the top um, and, you know, kind of a failure to address that. Um, but the American Apparel brand was actually bought by a Canadian company, which I got to say, hugely disappointed in what has happened since then. They relaunched it online, but instead of keeping sort of the made in America foundation, um, they decided to offshore a lot of their production. And not only did they do that, they sort of 
you know, frankly, spit in the face of American manufacturers. They set up this page on their website that was like, you can choose between a Made in America t-shirt and a, a t-shirt made overseas. And they um, look exactly the same in the photos, only the uh, Made in America version is, um, the price is really much higher. Um, Ouch. And this wow. is just, you know, hugely, hugely unnecessary. You know, I get it. They don't believe sort of in the Made in America movement. They want to offshore their production. Lots of apparel companies do that, but I really just think it's disingenuous and frankly mean yeah. um, to sort of do well, that. Especially if they're keeping the name American right. Apparel. Right. And the American yeah. Apparel name was built on Made in USA. Yeah. Um, the good news is, is that American Apparel is no longer the only sort of big name in the game. We have a lot of big companies that have sort of broken through into the mainstream. Um, I'm just going to name two that you've probably heard of. Um, the first, of course, is American Giant. Um, I know that's a favorite of yours. A favorite of mine. I have lots of American Giant apparel. Um, they Slate, of course, named their hoodie in 2012 the best hoodie ever made. Um, they have sweats, they have t-shirts, they just started putting out dresses and blankets and handbags and all sorts of stuff. Um, and they sort of did it the opposite way of American Apparel. They don't have any retail outlets. They don't do any advertising campaigns. It's all through word of mouth. Um, and the other big um, name that I'm sure you guys have heard of as well is Alex and Ani. Um, hugely popular there. Um, bracelets and other jewelry made in Rhode Island. Um, you know, they have really been smart. They have sort of have a niche when it comes to their jewelry. Um, they use sort of the Made in USA as part of their branding, but it's not all of it. They really believe in the product they're putting out and um, sort of the style and the fashion sort of part of it, um, and they found a lot of success. So we lost American Apparel, but we're, we're gaining you know companies left and right who are breaking through in the mainstream, which is great to see. That is good news. Um, so there, there was another big development uh, over the summer where something that we talk about a lot is why isn't there any advanced technology product manufacturing in the United States or smartphones or Apple. But there was an announcement of a, uh, of, of a big uh, tech maker coming to Wisconsin. Jet, what was going on there? Foxconn, need I say more? <laughs> uh, so here's the story. Trump is all about bringing manufacturing jobs. That's what he's promised in the campaign. That's what he continues to promise. He likes to tweet a lot about it. So he comes up with this idea to potentially talk to these manufacturers. Whether or not he did, I don't know, but he's sure to take credit for it. So Foxcom is a screen manufacturer. They make TV screens, they make iPhone screens, things of that sort, advanced manufacturing. And in June, there were these rumors that they were going to go into one of seven locations in the United States, and eventually they ended up announcing with President Trump that they were going to build a huge facility in Wisconsin. In the a, White House, right? Uh -huh. have, yeah. 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 This facility is going to be on 1,000 acres of land. It's supposed to bring 13,000 jobs, and Foxconn has said, I don't want to say promise, but they said they would uh, throw in $30 million of investment. So. On the face of it, everything looks great, but there are some things to keep in mind. The first thing is Foxconn has a history of pulling out of deals. In the past year alone, they've promised over $27 billion to different factories in China, in America, and India. And that's more than they've spent in the past 23 years combined. Wow. On top of that, there's a quite a history of them dropping out of these things in Brazil and Pennsylvania even. And so everyone's a little worried about it. And so I think that Wisconsin, probably knowing this, has really put together this incentive package that is in some ways mind-blowing. Uh, to give you a preview, 
Foxconn isn't going to have to pay any sales tax on their profits. They're not going to have to abide by state environmental standards. And on top of that, Wisconsin is investing $10 billion. I mean, when you break out the numbers, you're talking for each job that they've promised to create. If they create all of those, taxpayers are paying $15,000 to $19,000. Wow. Big wow. investment, five times more than any other normal investment, and definitely Wisconsin's biggest. Yeah, and that's if they if they do the maximum they say they're gonna do, which there's been a history that they don't follow through. They definitely that. don't yeah. seem to be following through, and and I think that's where the question comes, and I think we'll get into a little bit more of that in just a moment, but here we have Trump, who promises big, promises all of these jobs, and then he kind of leaves and the people in Wisconsin are left picking up the pieces. Now, it could be a great thing, the economy could grow, you know, but we don't know. For example, just this week there are rumors that uh, Foxconn has asked for another $140 million for a big power plant, and that will be paid for by the five million people serviced. It will have more power than any other plant in the state. On top wow. of that, they're looking yeah. for funding and laws to have a road built between their factory and their parking lot, which is two miles away, that will have self-automation. So they want to be able to transport. I mean, I'm thinking like a Disneyland yeah. thing here to yeah. get to your, to your parking. And they want other people to pay for this, right? Yeah. Yes. Well, that's, yeah. Yeah, I think that's the part where it gets tricky. And it yeah. gets tricky, too, because Wisconsin doesn't have laws in the book for sure. some of this technology. So I think there are some good things here. Jobs are definitely a plus. but. I think until we see it, it's still a big question. Yeah, yeah. It it sounds like it may be uh, a big promise, but something that is gonna fail to deliver. And I know it's caused an upheaval in state politics as as well, and has cost a, a couple of folks their uh, their leadership positions in the state <laughs> legislature. So, Matt. About a year ago, Donald Trump was busy on Twitter talking about uh, jobs being outsourced in Indianapolis and in the, the carrier and the Rexnord factories uh, specifically and taking a lot of credit or threatening uh, companies that were going to move jobs overseas and saying he was saving some jobs. So what actually happened uh, on the west side of Indianapolis <coughs> over the last year? Well, yeah, that, that kind of actually happened. It started, the story started... Um, about actually not a like a, a, during the campaign about 18 months ago when or yeah or is that that's about right 18 months ago when the uh a video went viral on the internet showed um a middle, middle management type you know announcing to a factory floor full of workers that they'd be losing their jobs that they um that the facility they were working at this furnace making facility a carrier air conditioning company in west west indianapolis would be moving to mexico um within about a day i think about a million people had seen this thing donald trump was one of them he was in the middle of his you know the primary campaign um and he started he he, he took it up you know saying things like i alone can fix this i'm the only one who understands how to how to address this problem he made it his own um Carrier had said that just, you know the cost saving was too much. There was like such a such a like a price different differential in what they could afford to pay their uh, Indianapolis employees as opposed to uh, workers in Mexico was so great that it just you know made it, it was made it was too much for their bottom line to to ignore. Um, you know, and so they 
they met with just about every member of the Indiana congressional delegation. They met with then Governor Mike Pence. They, you know, heard heard you know heard uh, proposals from the union on the local union on cost saving measures. None of this was enough to sway them in May of two, right. 2016. So fast forward now to after the election, and Trump says he's going to save these jobs, right? Suddenly, um, basically the same deal that didn't work you know, uh, six months earlier was now was now uh, palatable to uh, the carrier corporation. To um, uh, they, w- they were able to cut a deal with um, the Indiana Economic Development Corporation, a state agency, for about $7 million in um, tax breaks and, um, you know, and apprenticeship training funding and stuff like that that would keep, would, they were going to keep, you know, some of the workforce that they were planning on moving to Mexico. Um, this uh, was instead of mo- instead of moving the entire plant, which is about 1,300 people, they were going to retain about 700 jobs. And instead, they were going to retain about half, promising to keep about half of their Hoosier workforce in place. Um, this was the deal that President-elect Trump and his and his Vice President Mike Pence were uh, were able to work out with with the carrier folks. Um, soon as soon as it, as it was you know, finalized, Trump was in Indianapolis. Um, you know, tour, touring the facility with uh, with Pence. You know, they gave, he gave a meeting with workers and management, and gave a you know gave a, uh, a nationally televised speech from the f- shop floor. You know, uh, touting all the jobs that he created. He overstated how many jobs that were going to be saved. Um, didn't bother to correct it any time later. Wait, Trump made up. Uh, yeah, yeah, he's, yeah he, I think he overstated it, I think, by, if I remember correctly, by about, about 300 jobs. Mm-hmm. Um, went home, caught flack on it from the local union president who, you know, called him out saying, like, now I have to go to explain to you the 300 people who are still getting laid off. What, oh, no, you're still, get, you're still losing your job. Your job's still going to Mexico. Trump just either intentionally or not misspoke. Um, and then Trump attacked the union president, and then you know it, it, it turned into a, a big cluster uh, that didn't really you know it was it was kind of you know it was just very very misleading situation. This didn't have any you know it didn't say anything about um, you know he, it, I, the optics would have you believe that the plant was saved, though they they ended up laying off about 500 people, and this yeah. had nothing to, said nothing about um, you know the. 700 workers up the road in uh, Huntington, which is in north central Indiana. And they all lost their jobs. They all lost. The yeah. same company, they all lost their jobs. All those jobs went to Mexico. And, and then, yeah. And yeah. Trump had, had tweeted about them as well, right? Yeah, all these people were men- mentioned in tweets over the, over the campaign. Um, immediately following the carrier deal, Trump started tweeting about... Um, the workers at a ball bearing plant about a mile down the like road. Rexner. From, the Rexner, the Rexner yeah. workers right around the corner from the carrier plant in Indianapolis who had announced that they were moving to Mexico a little later in 2016 after after Carrier's initial announcement. Um, he said something like, he called it, a, you know, other, said they were rather viciously firing all 300 of their workers. Uh, no more. This isn't going to happen anymore. That was, that was the day after his, his Carrier announcement. But it didn't really have an effect on Rexnord. They, they laid everybody off. Everybody got, all those jobs got sent to Mexico. Um, Trump didn't tweet again about him again until later when he said that was, it, you know, it was a decision made by the, under the Obama administration. Right, um, right. 
but yeah you know it kind of i think it would the whole the whole i if i had to like sum it all up i would say that the whole scenario kind of show the limits of um you know industrial policy by tweet there's a limit it only goes so far and you can only browbeat so many companies before you know ultimately they decide they can just like they can take the pr hit from trump's you know twitter followers for a little while and then they just keep rolling on yeah and he seems that seems to have dip, disappeared from his repertoire altogether and he's instead tweeting about nfl players and anybody who stands up yeah. to him um so so beth before we dive into policy uh, and this is kind of a good bridge. So, you know, the Trump family, Ivanka Trump in particular, uh, they had brands, they had um, merchandise, and um, Ivanka Trump had been criticized a lot along with her dad for having virtually all of this made overseas. Uh, how has that changed at all since well, they came into office? Well, it hasn't, and this controversy, which, you know, was really strong during the, the 2016 campaign, has sort of... Um, lingered, especially for Ivanka Trump. I think because her brand is so um, in the public space, you know, it, it's sold at Macy's. People see her shoes, they see her clothes. Um, and all of that is made overseas. In fact, um, there's been a lot of investigations um, to try to figure out where it's made, what factories it's being made at, what those conditions are like. Earlier this year, um, some activists in China actually got arrested because they were trying to investigate the conditions at one of those factories. Um, and it really heated up again in October. Ivanka um, sort of became the public face for the administration of the tax plan. And she went out and she went on Fox and Friends and a bunch of other Fox News shows and, and talked about oh, how this tax plan is going to help the American worker. And you know all American workers need is a level playing field and they compete with anyone in the world. That's messaging that we use regularly. We believe in it. But you know all of her stuff is made overseas. And so she got a lot of criticism for that. I think that criticism is fair. Um, and I'll just say, you know, I think she can sort of, you know, I know she's not involved in the day-to-day -day operations with her company anymore, but I think that the company could take a big step forward by just bringing one thing back. Yeah. Just make yeah. some shoes in the United States. Right. Just Ima make a jacket. Imagine what that would do for yeah. public opinion. Just, just yeah. would send a message that, yes, we have a long way to go. This isn't going to happen overnight, but I am committed to doing this and I believe in it. Um, so that's what I would encourage the entire Trump organization to, to kind of do. Uh, 2018 wish list, we'll call yes, that. Yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, let's, let's shift to policy. And, you know, Trump opened strong his first week. He signed uh, an executive order kind of withdrawing us from the Trans-Pacific Partnership trade agreement, which we hadn't entered yet, but it was, uh, it was a campaign promise that he fulfilled uh, and then began signing a, a number of executive orders designed to help manufacturing. And, and one of them was a, an order uh, that generated some controversy in part because it dealt with pipelines, but there was something about manufacturing in there, right, Jet? Yeah, so early January, or I guess the end of January, uh, Trump signed an executive order saying that pipelines were going to be made in America. And he tied this to the Keystone Pipeline, which had been in the works for 10 years. A Canadian company had been trying to get approvals, and there was some pushback from, from environmentalists and some other reasons. The thing that was pretty great about this executive order was the fact that he also include melted and poured standards in it. So what that means is if I'm a consumer, 
you know, and I have a product like a microwave. Well, there are a lot of parts that would go into a microwave, but it might, you might make all those parts overseas and assemble it in America, and yeah, you do create jobs in America, but look at all of those jobs for all the parts that go into the microwave. That's what we're missing. And, and that's where all the jobs are. And that's where the all the jobs chain. are. Yeah. And so to equate that to pipelines, same thing. If the steel is melted and poured here in America, that's where the jobs are. So there are great paying jobs that we could bring here. The problem was this pipeline, most of it still was already bought overseas. And so what became and looked like a big triumph when you got into the details, much like some of these other stories like Carrier, it just quite, it wasn't what we expected, I guess. Yeah. Well, right. Well, he's, he said at the signing, he said, we're going to make our, you know, our pipelines out of American steel uh, and was going to have the Commerce de Department develop a plan. Whatever happened to that? Good question. Insert cricket noise here because I haven't seen anything. <laughs> right. Yeah, we've all been wondering about that, but there hasn't been any kind of apparent policy change mm -hmm. in that. In fact, I would even say uh, talking about this idea of making things in America, uh, he talks a lot about buy American, hire American. And it seems like the news cycle on the Trump administration has started moving toward higher American and not the buy American. And we're so just the immigration rather than mm -hmm. the trade. And it's yeah. really disappointing for me because I see that phrase being used for immigration when we're just missing a whole half of it, the buy American mm -hmm. piece. And that's right. a very important piece for creating jobs. Yeah. yeah. And so, Matt, you know, I mean, the president did sign an executive order that, as Jet pointed out, was called buy America, hire American, um, that's supposed to make sure that government spending is going to purchase American-made products. Where's that in the process? Because he did that in the spring, right? Yeah, he signed that, uh, it was in April, um, in actually not too far away from where this Foxconn plant is supposed to go, um, in Kenosha. At oh, Snap-on Tools. Snap-on snap yeah. Tools in yeah. Kenosha, Wisconsin. Um, yeah, it was, you know, the phrase that came out of it was, he, Trump uses this line a lot now, buy American, hire American. And it's, you know, it combines, um, to Trump, Trump's favorite things, you know, a, uh, a hardline position on immigration with um, empty rhetoric on American, you know, for supporting American manufacturing. If I may editorialize a little bit. Uh, so yeah, the, you know, the one part was on H-1B visas, trying, like making, you know, making sure that the government is being very stringent on its visa applications and, or accepting them and whatnot. The other one was to direct the federal government to fully enforce federal guidelines prioritizing the use. American firms and goods and federal projects. That was that was the idea behind it. And I think that also that that executive order also set up a process where there'd be a report. There would be a be report. Some yeah. And so where's where's that? There's is no that report yet. The report was due. Um, the report has not shown up yet. Um, uh, you know, Tammy Baldwin actually is a senator from Wisconsin. She's um, actually you know has made by America or you know uh, American manufacturing policy kind of a big part of her of of her policy portfolio. She's also for for re-election next year and it's a big deal in places like Wisconsin and she's making a she's making hay out of this thing uh, and she's pointed she at, she's like sent a letter actually just sent a letter to Trump mm. the Trump administration the other day hey where's the report at um, there's no report planned right. or well, re ready at this point. Ho hopefully something will shake it loose and we'll we'll go, we'll go to our uh, third plank in the uh, trains that left the station but never arrived anywhere um, executive orders. 
So uh, Trump also signed something specific on steel trade in April, Beth. What what happened to that? Yeah, that's right. So this goes back to an issue that's been going on for a while. Um, there is a global uh, overcapacity crisis happening in uh, many industrial sectors. Um, for the purposes of this conversation, we'll talk about steel and aluminum. Um, basically, what's happening is that pretty much every country on Earth makes enough of that product that they can use, um, except China. China is making way more steel and way more aluminum than it needs. And then what happens is it dumps all of that product into the global marketplace. Um, all of that steel and aluminum, by the way, is subsidized heavily by the Chinese government. Um, so Chinese uh, steel and aluminum makers don't have to worry about making a profit. So they dump it into the global market at uh, rock bottom prices, flood the marketplace, and what ends up happening is that companies like those in the US are not able to compete. Um, with those unfair prices. And we've seen tens of thousands of layoffs, dozens of plant closures. It's wreaked havoc on industrial communities throughout this country. Um, so during the Obama administration, um, several trade cases were filed with the Commerce Department seeking remedy. Um, and big tariffs were placed on specific steel products. That wasn't enough. We're still seeing this crisis because China is still flooding the market. So enter Donald Trump. He comes into office talking a very big game. He goes into steel communities and he tells them, I'm going to stand up for steel workers. I'm going to make this right. And in April, he signs um, executive orders basically launching what is called a Section 232 investigation. Essentially, it's an investigation led by the Commerce Department to determine whether um, there are two of them, one in steel, one in aluminum, whether steel and aluminum imports um, are so damaging that it's impacting our national security. Um, we think it is. I mean, we need steel and aluminum to build our bridges. We need them to build our fighter jets, um, aircraft carriers. You know, if we lose our ability to make steel or aluminum, we lose a huge ability to um, safeguard ourselves and defend ourselves in a crisis. Um, again, Trump administration talked a very big game on this. They held a public hearing right away and they said, um, we are going to unveil these reports by the end of the June. It is now almost 2018. We have not seen these reports. And what has happened is this has made the crisis so much worse because all of those foreign imports were pushed into the market really quickly because all those importers expected quick action and they expected, you know, the administration to do something and, you know, level the playing field with tariffs or do something to make things fair for American companies again, American workers again. That didn't happen. And now we've seen a surge of imports. Imports are up 20% in the steel sector this year. So, you know, dropped the ball, made a crisis worse. There have been more plant closures in Pennsylvania in the past few months. Um, you know, the administration needs to, to finally act on this. Yeah, so that that's that, that's a holdover for our 2018 wish list. Yes. Something that we thought would be, you know, long past us by now is is genuine help for the steel industry, um, which has again kind of gone off the tracks yeah. s somewhere. Um, so China, uh, and and we can make this a lightning round because Trump <laughs> Trump talked big about China, made big promises. First of all, he used very graphic terms to describe our relationship with with China. So I'll ask Matt. Has that changed? Has he, you know, has, has he persuaded President Xi to change his ways? Is, is he the boss in this relationship? Uh, I think that the Chinese are interested in making him feel like he's the boss. 
I don't know if he is the boss, um, but they certainly, you know, I. But that that's kind of certainly what the optics are made to look. I. It seems like after you know when Trump came in, China, China didn't know what to make of him either. They just like you know, oh, it's the reality TV magnet or, or a real estate magnet. And like he's a. He's an unknown quantity. He's a, he's a wild card. We're not sure how to handle him. Um, and, and his rhetoric has changed about yeah. the economic relationship. With well, yeah, China he too, started right? off talking about, uh, you know, um, you know, he he said he was going to be, he's going to label China a currency manipulator. Immediately after his first meeting with Xi, which they did, um, they they held at his uh, his resort in Florida, Mar-a-Lago. Um, it was, you know. Trump pretty blatantly said it. He's like, I'm trying to get, I'm trying to get China to play ball on North Korea issues. So he took, you know, he took uh, cur the currency label, currency manipulation label off the table. Um, kind of suggests that it's trade is just a part of a quid quid pro quo with with them. Um, they yeah. also announced a like a one, 100 days of you know before we you know of, of action before they turn around and come back with uh, more concrete trade proposals. But in the meantime, they said, oh yeah, we'll allow more beef ex beef imports into China from from the United States. All these things that have actually been negotiated under the Obama administration. But mm -hmm. you know, you, you, it's just like things to kind of make make it look good and make make a. Uh, Give him, give him some easy wins that he can he can trumpet. Right. So so Trump has softened his rhetoric on China. He's flip flopped how many times, Jet, on uh, currency manipulation? Three official times, I guess. But I mean, he promised in day one. So can you count every day after that? Right. And he also promised, I think, to bring down the trade deficit, which he said was was high. How is is our trade deficit with China up or down? It's right now. Um, there, so we're we're, t we're ten months of, we're ten months through the 2017 year because we're so we've only we've only counted in trade data in trade yeah. data that's right it's, it's December but we only got October figures we'll have we'll have it completed in like early February have all the numbers in front of us um, but right now we are on track to have actually if everything holds up the largest goods trade deficit ever with China this year. Which, I don't think that's the kind of record that Trump was shooting for. Yeah, he, he will, he'll this. just, he's going to, he's going to get just over the bar. It's like um, some people, it's imagine like, um, you know, uh, Olympic, you know, vaulters trying to get over the, you know, doing the high jump. He's going to beat Obama by about an inch. He's going you know, to, the highest uh, tra goods trade deficit ever was in 2015. We had a $367.3 billion goods trade deficit with China. Right. And we're on track to be at 370 okay. this year. I don't think he'll be tweeting that out. Yeah, you never know. Yeah. Um, well, there's one story that I, I hope we get to talk about, Scott. Um, the Manufacturing Council. So you were part of the Manufacturing Council. The White House announced uh, before they even before the administration even took office. Um, and in August, that council was dissolved. Um, in between that time, a lot happened, including you. Le you just made the decision in the wake of um, what happened down in Charlottesville this summer to resign your. Um, position. And I was hoping you could just sort of share some thoughts on what happened. And, and you know, now that we're a few months out, I maybe reflect a little bit about it. Yeah. So, it, I mean, it was an interesting beginning. I'll, I'll always for, remember the day it was formed because it's uh, my son's birthday, January 27th. And uh, when, you know, when I decided to leave, it was the first day of a lovely Hawaiian <laughs> vacation, um, which uh, kind of ran counter to the Aloha experience. Um, but in between, there was a lot of disappointment. I mean, th th this was a council that had uh, major CEOs on it, uh, a couple of labor leaders and myself. And 
uh, initially had a really kind of grand design to focus on issues like infrastructure and trade policy and taxes and the workforce. Um, uh, and it, end, it ended up with a very narrow focus on apprenticeships uh, and, and essentially became a, a pool for Trump to draw on for meetings in the White House. Um, and what, what also ended up happening is that the administration, as you know, made a lot of really unpopular and you could argue you know, outrageous decisions uh, over the course of the year that were deeply controversial. Um, and... Uh, and and we would be asked, well, are you going to stay on the committee? And I, and we always kind of set a um, set a standard of like, look, we can disagree on policy. Um, it's, it's no secret that I didn't agree with the Trump administration on every policy matter. Uh, but when it came to something like what happened in Charlottesville and the president's response to that, um, that was a breaking point, not only for me, uh, but for a, a number of other, I think, very, very courageous CEOs. And Trump, you know, a day later d- disbanded the council before it disbanded itself. I mean, I right. think you could argue <laughs> <laughs> that it was already it was already under disbandment, yeah. uh, uh, sort of like Omarosa's resignation or what have you. But um, the uh, but but one interesting thing about that moment was that you know you you hadn't seen and I think CEOs are probably a pretty un- unlikely group to uh, stand up to the administration or to the president in particular when he has said or done something outrageous. Since that time, you've seen plenty of that. You've seen senators do it. You've seen uh, you've seen the media do it directly. You've seen public figures. Uh, doing it. And uh, granted, there's been a lot of outrageous stuff and, and there's no shortage of it. But it, you know, in a way, I think that action uh, said that, you know, corporate America realizes that, you know, you can have policy conversations, but there are there are also clear lines here um, about what our expectations of a leader uh, of the United States are. Um, and so, you know, we still work on our issues, and I think we have a lot in common with what the Trump administration says it wants to do, buy America, stand up for the steel industry, uh, reform our trade laws, promote manufacturing, These are all, and, and invest in infrastructure. These are all things that we're really interested in, in doing and that we'll continue to do um, uh, into 2018. So when we come back, uh, we'll have a bonus round of holiday gift ideas uh, just in time for your last-minute Christmas shopping. So we are back with some excellent last-minute holiday gift-giving ideas that we've all assembled. I will start with a couple of my favorite uh, Allen Edmonds, which I'm wearing today. It's a uh, American shoe company based in Port Washington, Wisconsin. Uh, this just up Lake Michigan from Milwaukee. They've been making shoes for uh, in America for more than 100 years. They are awesome. Uh, my feet love them. And I can tell you that uh, it is a gift that Eddie, I think, gentlemen, uh, would be very happy to have. My, the second thing on my list is something that you can pick up at the last minute on your way home if you've forgotten. You've run out of time for online shopping. Go to the liquor store. Get some Bullet Bourbon. Uh, it's uh, like all real bourbon. It's made in America. And uh, Bullet is is made just outside of Louisville, Kentucky. It has a great backstory to it. And it also has the added bonus that it is uh, distilled by steelworkers. Uh, so you're supporting good jobs when you're drinking your favorite uh, bourbon cocktail straight or 
shaken. Beth, how about you? So I have two picks. Um, the first one is uh, Grace by Grit, which is out of California, my home state. Um, they make athletic apparel for women. And the, the really great thing about this company is that they, they really keep women in mind when they're designing um, their apparel. So I have a pair of their athletic pants. Um, and my favorite thing about it is that they have a bunch of hidden pockets, which is so great because, you know, it's so hard to find, you know, running pants that have pockets and you need pockets when yeah, you go running. You do. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, put your, I like to keep my ID in there. I like to have my, my house key, um, my, my phone, you know, especially if I have headphones in and I'm running. Um, so it's really hard to find good athletic wear with pockets. This company makes them competitively priced. Um, you know, you can find them online. I encourage you to, to check them out. Um, and the other company is a company called Replay. And they make um, sort of dishware for uh, toddlers. I have a two-year-old. Um, and you can find Replay stuff at, at retailers like Target. Very easy to find. Super affordable. Um, everything they make is eco-friendly. It's made out of recycled milk jugs. Um, super colorful, really fun plates and silverware and cups and things like that. Um, BPA-free, so you know it's safe to use. Um, and, you know, when you have a, a toddler, they like to throw plates. They like to, you know, be very um, interactive with their meals at times. And this stuff really holds up dishwasher safe, you know, all of that. So, you know, if you have a young one at home or you're trying to find something for someone with kids, I encourage you to check them out. Awesome. Awesome. Matt, how about you? I have one. Uh, I only picked one. Vermont Flannel, which Vermont Flannel Company, which I believe... Um, yeah, we talked to Mark Baker just a few weeks ago. That's right. Talk, they, you know, earlier guest on the, on the podcast. Um, uh, they're from Vermont, as you might imagine. And uh, I have a scarf from them, scarf from Vermont Flannel Company. I ride a bike. Uh, it finally got cold in D.C. And it got really cold recently. And wearing a, having a good scarf um, keeps you warm as hell. Which it's awesome. Important. And they also have lounge pants and flannel shirts and the whole gamut of yeah. flannel. And their fabric is so soft when you feel it. It's yeah. just so comfortable. It's a really it's a really nice it's like a really nice product. I, I mean like it I I find it, you know, I think you could really relax in something like this, but practically speaking and I wear it all the time. Um, you, you know, you could do you you couldn't do it much better than the one I got. I awesome. I, I very much recommend Vermont. And made in me. Vermont. Jet, how about yeah. you? I have two as well. Um, the first one I actually found, so I'm a big Shark Tank fan, and there was another great company called Our Riveter, who's kind of a veteran company or military family company. And so I was like, oh, I'm gonna look into this. And that's how I was introduced to Sword and Plow, which is a company that makes jewelry, bags, different things from military surplus. Oh, wow. And their name is really cool because you have sword representing the military and plow representing this idea of taking something like a sword and making it useful in civilian life. And so I think it's a great gift, first off, because it's just functional. I have a bag that I use every day to bring to work. I replaced another great American-made bag and have loved both. Um, but also it's just something with a little bit of meaning. Part of your purchase will be donated to veteran charities, and I think that's something meaningful to a lot of people in the country. Uh, following up with the patriotic theme, yeah. um, Annan Flag Makers, they've been making flags here in America since the 1830s. They do amazing work. So I'm a little bit of a history buff. My husband has dragged me to a few reenactments since we moved to the East Coast. 
And one time I was talking to a vendor who was selling flags and I said, hey, are these flags made in America? And he said, you touch that flag and you tell me. And I touched it and it was because the quality was so wow. good. And so I just, they make American flags, they make international historic flags, you can get Revolutionary War flags. I mean, if you really want to like just a historian, buy a British Revolutionary flag made in America. It's a great product and can't recommend it enough. You, you can also find Anon at place, er, big yeah. or big stores like Target. Like I've yeah. seen their yeah. flags there before. Costco, Home Depot, QVC, Amazon, all the big yeah. retailers. It's just a great American success, success story for business. Great. What a fantastic idea. So, guys, thank you for those suggestions and for your analysis. It's been uh, an epic year, uh, and here's hoping we get some of those trains back on track in, in, in 2018. So Beth, Matt, and Jet, thanks again for joining the podcast today and happy holidays. Happy holidays. Happy holidays. Thanks for having us and for keeping it made in America. Yeah, hopefully we get some promises capped in 2018. Hope springs eternal. And that will do it for the Manufacturing Report for this week. You can find this and past episodes on iTunes and SoundCloud. And please consider taking a moment to help us spread the word. Write a review of this podcast, rate us, and share it with a friend who you think would enjoy the Manufacturing Report. Please don't forget to check out our Made in America product guide at AmericanManufacturing.org, where you can find many of the gifts that we mentioned on the podcast today. So we'll be taking Christmas week off and we'll reboot our top episode of 2017 to start off the year. We'll be back with fresh content on January the 8th. Until then, I want to thank the great teams at E18 and AAM, as well as Beth, Matt, and Jet for making this episode possible. As we close out this year, I want to thank you, our listeners, for your loyalty. We've broken some news on this podcast and made some waves, and we hope 2018 will bring more of the same. Thanks again for joining us. Together, we can keep it made in America.